Jesus, we are reminded uh, that it's all about you. It's, it's so easy for us to get distracted. You're our cup. You're our portion. You alone are the author of living water, and we come to, to drink of you. And Lord, I ask that you would refresh us tonight, or that you would reveal areas of discouragement and fear and unbelief and bring us to a place of confidence. Just those that need that special touch from you tonight, that you would grant it. We draw near to you and claim your promise that you're going to draw near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The word Deuteronomy means a second law, and the Hebrew title uh, for this book means the book of sermons, and it really is the book of sermons of Moses. Moses knows that he's going to pass away. He's preparing this next generation to come into the promised land, and it's his teaching on the law. He's passing on the things that are really important to his heart. As we read the book of Deuteronomy uh, together, please keep that in mind. He knows this next generation's going into the land, and he's really instilling the things of God in their hearts and in their minds. The first four chapters review the journeys of the children of Israel, and then chapter 5 through chapter 26 is restoring the law. It's, it's Moses teaching on the law. And then verses, or chapter 27 through 30 is revealing the future about the promised land. And then the book ends with the retirement of Moses from verse 31 through verse uh, 34. The promised land is referred to 200 times in the book of Deuteronomy. You can tell the focus is the children of Israel going into uh, the promised land. We're going to cover some big chunks tonight. The goal, the hope, is to go through four chapters, so buckle up. We'll be in verse 1 of chapter 1. These are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel on this side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain opposite surf between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hezroth, and Dishabah. This is before they've come into the promised land. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year in the 11th month on the first day of the month that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them after he had killed Siphon king of the Amorites and dwelt in Heshbon and Og king of Bashan and dwelt in Ashroth of Edri. Notice that scripture tells us that it was an 11-day journey. It is 11-day journey from Horeb to Kadesh Bar Barnea, and then it jumps in verse 3, and it came to pass in the 40th year and the 11th month. Slow learners make for long travelers. The children of Israel were slow learners. They were slow to believe and trust in the promises of God, and so what could have been a couple of weeks traveling from Egypt to the promised land ended up being 40 years where a generation dies in the wilderness. Have you ever looked at your life and gone, man, why is this spiritual growth coming so slow? Why does it seem that I'm just going around the same mountain over and over and over and over again? And it may be because of unbelief in our hearts. It's, it's not the first thing that we tend to look at, but it was unbelief that kept that first generation that was delivered from bondage from being able to go into uh, the promised land. In verse 5, on this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this, saying, the Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain and the mountains, in the lowland, in the south and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them their descendants after them. God says it's long enough in the wilderness. Now it's time to go into the promised land the promised land is described here for us. It's 300,000 square miles was the promised land. And for us, 
as new covenant believers, what does the promised land depict? Some say heaven, but there were battles in the promised land, weren't there? So the promised land doesn't depict heaven, but it does depict a life in the spirit. When we've been baptized, not in the Jordan River, but baptized in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're empowered by the Spirit of God, walking in the promises of God. In verse nine, and I spoke to you all that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you. Ever felt that way? I can't do this alone. Moses says, I cannot bear the children of Israel alone. This is also recorded for us in Exodus chapter 18. The reason that Moses felt this way was because Jethro, his father-in-law, came to visit and said, Mo, what are you doing? You're having every complaint of the children of Israel, a million people plus, come to you. You're gonna wear yourself out and you're gonna wear the people out. There has to be a better plan. Verse 10, the Lord your God has multiplied you and here you are today as the stars of heaven in the multitude. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we see the word the Lord, the Lord. It's used over 250 times. The Lord your God has multiplied you. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he's promised you. The problem is not the growth. It's good that the children of Israel are growing. It's how Moses is dealing with it. A lot of times when growth is happening around us in our families or a business or in a church, we tend to want to stop growth because it's overwhelming. And it's not that the growth should stop, it's that the way we're going about it needs to change. There needs to be delegation. Systems have to, have to change. In verse 12, how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise and understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. The people agree. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise, knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of 50, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribe. So different leaders had different capacities. Some could handle hundreds, but others could only handle fifties, and, and others could handle tens. Were, were any less significant? No, but each had their capacity where they thrived in, in leadership. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. God emphasizes injustice that there wouldn't be partiality, that no one would get favoritism. Don't be afraid in someone's presence. Maybe they have a lot of money. They've got a lot of power. They're looked up to. They should be held to the same standard. God's heart is, is one that is not showing partiality. If something was too hard or it was too difficult, then it would go to Moses. Are you feeling burnt out? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Well, Moses was too. Moses is saying, I can't bear this. That's another way of saying, I'm burned out. Oftentimes, it takes a Jethro. It takes somebody outside of our life, looking at our life, giving us counsel, and saying, why don't you try this? And usually, it's reinforcements. What of what you're doing can you give away to someone else if possible, to allow them to, to come in? What if Moses would have said, well, I like working by myself. I don't want to give this away. Ultimately, it wouldn't have been good for him and it wouldn't have been good for the people of God. Leadership is to be shared. Leadership is to be delegated out. Verse 19. So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. How was the wilderness? 
It was great and terrible. But notice, they went through all that great and terrible wilderness. We're going to have wilderness experiences in our lives and spiritually. What's the best way to get through a wilderness? Well, you've got to go through it. One of our favorite children's books as a family describes a family going on a bear hunt. And they're out for this adventure. And they come to different obstacles. And the book says you can't go through it. You can't go around it. You, are you, you, you can go through it. You can't go around it. You guys look up the book. <laughs> I'm butchering the book. But basically, you've got to go through it. You've got to go through it. And if you're in a wilderness time, keep going. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. You've got to go through it. You can't go around it. You've got to go through it. Verse 20, and I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of our fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. Go get the land that God has promised. Go press into what God has for your life. Oftentimes what keeps us from going in to what he has for us is fear and discouragement. Discouragement can paralyze us. Discouragement can keep us from moving forward in the things of God, as well as fear. What are you discouraged about tonight? Has it gotten you to the place where you're stuck in your tracks and you're not hopeful about the future? There's just this dark cloud that seems to go over you everywhere that, that you go. Or fear, fear of failure, fear of not God, God not providing, fear of rejection. Well, what are those fears in our lives? And in order for us to move forward into what God would have for us, we've got to deal with our fears. We've got to deal with our discouragements. What's the best place to deal with our fear and our discouragement? With the Lord. Coming and spending time with your Father, talking those things through with the Lord. Oftentimes the psalmist would, would declare that as he sought the Lord, he was delivered from his fears. We don't have to be a victim to our fears. We don't have to be a victim to our discouragements. In verse 22, And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us spend time before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. Let's send 12 spies to check out the land. The plan pleased me well, so I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkwa, and they spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it to us, and they brought back word to us, it is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Of course it would be. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Isn't that twisted? Here is God's wanting to bring them into something good. And their conclusion is, well, the reason that God brought me out of Egypt is because he hates me. We can really get a skewed view of God, can't we? If for some reason you have come to this conclusion that God hates you, you've gotten the wrong message because <laughs> God loves you. And sometimes our circumstances don't go our way, so we interpret that as God must be against me. But we know that God is for us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Was it God who's in error here? or the children of Israel. Obviously the children of Israel. So if we're in a place of such discouragement that our takeaway is, well, God, you hate me, uh, it's my perspective that's wrong. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. We've seen the giants there. Only two of the spies brought back a report of faith. The other 10 was of unbelief. They were viewing their circumstances through their eyes instead of through the perspective of faith. 
What kind of report are we sharing with others? Are we sharing a report of discouragement or one that God is working? And what report are we listening to? What are you listening to tonight? You will find brothers and sisters in Christ that will share discouragement with you if you're not careful. You gotta filter that out and say, I know they love the Lord, but right now they're discouraged. Right now they're not walking in in faith. They're not seeing things through the eyes of faith and unbelief consumed their hearts. In verse 29, then I said to you, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents to show you the way you should go and the fire by night and the cloud by day. They had experienced so much of God's provision and care. The way that a father would carry his son. God would go before them with a cloud and a pillar of fire. God miraculously delivered them out of Egypt, but yet they didn't believe. We want to look at God's past faithfulness to have confidence for him in the future. How has God been faithful to you in the past? How has he carried you? How has he seen you through? How has he saved you from your sins? And we might go, well, we don't have the same experience as the Egyptians. God hasn't taken me out of bondage from Pharaoh. He hasn't supernaturally provided for me in the wilderness. I don't get manna every day in my front yard from God. But God has given to us something better and something greater, and that's his son. We live on this side of the cross. We've experienced the Holy Spirit living inside of us, something that these Old Testament believers never experienced. We understand salvation. With that, that should anchor us to say, Lord, I'm confident for you in the future. If we're all honest, even though we've experienced so much of God's faithfulness in the past, when we have problems in the present, pressing on into the future, it's easy to doubt God, isn't it? It's easy to go, God, are you going to see me through? Yes, God's got it. He's got a, a way forward. He's got a path of life for us. In verse 34, and the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry. God hears our words. That's convicting. And took an oath saying, surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, he shall see it, and to him and his children I'm giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was also angry with me for your sake, saying, even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Only Joshua and Caleb got to enter in from this generation because they walked by faith. We have to walk by faith to enter into what God has for us. What stands out in this paragraph is God heard and he was angry. God sees our unbelief and it frustrates him. Imagine if you were wanting to bless someone and take them out to lunch. Maybe it was a nicer place. They're like, do you really want to do this? You're like, yeah, I really want to do this. All right, come on, let's go. They, they get in the car, you're driving there. Are you sure you can afford this? I mean, this is kind of an expensive place. Yeah, yeah, I can afford this. I've got, got the money to do this. Sit down, or, are you really gonna pay for this? Like, are you just pulling my leg, or is this kind of some cruel joke to bring me into this nice restaurant, and then you're gonna leave me with the bill? And this goes on, and this goes on, and then the check comes, and they're wrestling you for, for the check, and before long, you're gonna get frustrated and go, you know what, you're a moron. You're like, I've, I'm trying to bless you here. I, I'm trying to give you a gracious gift, but your unbelief will not allow you to be able to receive it. And how much more so for God, this is his children that he loves, and he's promised this to them, but yet they don't believe him. 
And they're in that place of, of unbelief. And same in my heart, in my life, when I don't trust the Lord. We go on to verse 39. Moreover, your little ones, your children, who you, who you say will be victims, will today have no knowledge of good and evil, nor shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. God says, you're not going to enter the promised land, but your young kids that still don't know good from evil, they're going to enter into the promised land. This is encouraging. You can enter into the promises of God no matter what mistakes your parents have made. Your parents may have walked in unbelief. Your parents may have not known the Lord. Guess what? You can enter into everything that God has for your life. Your parents may be wonderful men and women of God. That doesn't mean that you're going to walk in the promises of God. You have to choose for yourself. But this whole generation had parents that were mess-ups. All of them. They buried all of their parents in the wilderness, but they chose to walk by faith, and they could enter into the promises of God. Verse 41, Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded up his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. This first generation that had unbelief, once God told them you can't go into the land, they changed their mind. We're ready to go in the land. We're ready to do this now. And they grabbed their weapons. And the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up nor fight for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord, and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt in the mountain came up against you and chased you as bees do, and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice, nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. If God's not in it, we're destroyed. God said, look, you lost your opportunity to go into the land. They didn't listen and they got defeated. There's a theme here. They wouldn't listen to the Lord. Their unbelief kept them from listening to the Lord. In chapters two and three, they're, they're interesting chapters. I'm gonna primarily summarize them uh, tonight. There's several things uh, for us uh, to glean here. God reviews the victories that they had, and it's strategic by the Lord to do this. The reason that he re reviewed uh, the victories that they had was because they're about ready to go fight future battles. So God says, these are the victories that we have won on this side of the Jordan River. And we need to stop and remember the victories that God has, has brought us through. How has he shown himself faithful? How did he bring us to salvation? How have we seen his care? How have we seen his provision? Because it prepares us for future battles. Don't be forgetful. Then God spends great uh, detail here of telling them in chapters two and three of who not to go fight. He says, I don't want you to fight them. I don't want you to fight them. I don't want you to, to fight them because they weren't in the promised land. But we need to know what battles we're not to fight. This is an interesting time that we're living in right now. And it can be hard to decipher the battles that we're supposed to fight and the battles that we're not supposed to fight, but know where the Lord wants you to fight and then also know where the Lord doesn't want you to fight and God speaks to the children of Israel here and he says, I don't want you to meddle in this battle. This is something that I haven't called you to. The king of Shihon is uh, defeated and that is reviewed uh, for us. It's an important uh, battle that the Lord wants the children of Israel to remember. The land of the east is divided in these chapters as well for the two and a half tribes that did not want to go into the promised land. We reviewed that last week. We spent a lot of time on those two and a half tribes that didn't want to go into 
the promised land. We get to the end of chapter three and we see Moses is forbidden to go into the promised land. This is chapter three, verse 23. Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? Moses has it right as he's sharing these sermons. Who's like the Lord? He's not limited. Here's his request to the Lord. I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. Moses desperately wanted to get his feet into the promised land. God had told him that he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. God told him to speak to the rock. He hit the rock. He misrepresented God to the people, but he still wants to go into the promised land. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. What's really neat on the Mount of Transfiguration is Moses and Elijah show up to meet with Jesus. God snuck Moses into the promised land. That was in the promised land. By God's grace, Moses got to go into the promised land. But under the law, he could only look in. God says, you need to stop asking on this. You need to accept that I'm telling you no. Do you know that God sometimes tells you no? We see that in scripture. God told Moses no here. We see with Paul that he had a thorn in his flesh. He asked God to remove it, and he asked three times, and God said no. He said no each time, and he said my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul then goes on to write that he would glory in his affirmities. He wanted the power of Christ to rest upon him. I don't believe that Paul went on asking. I don't think he asked a fourth time, a fifth time, 600 times. He, he got his answer from the Lord, and the Lord said no. Some people in their theology have reduced God down to a giant genie where if we ask enough and if we simply have enough faith, then God is obligated to give us what we ask. That puts us in a lordship position instead of God being in authority. I suggest to you this evening that greater faith is to trust God, to give our request to the Lord, but then trust when God says no. Have we been asking God for something and he's clearly said no, and tonight is it time to accept the answer? Okay, this is a closed door. This is a loving father saying no. God was bold enough to speak it straight to Moses, saying, don't speak of me, to me of this matter anymore. In verse 27, go up to the top of Pishgah and lift your eyes toward the west and the north and the south and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over the Jordan, but command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you see. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. God said no to Moses going into the land, but God said yes to Moses encouraging Joshua. Many times when God is saying no to one thing, he's saying yes to something else. Moses has the humility to walk in what God said yes to, and that was to encourage Joshua. So Lord, you've said no to this, but you've said yes to this, so I'm gonna embrace the yes, even though it's not what I would like. If we're really honest, our flesh doesn't like no. We don't in enjoy hearing those words of being told no. We see strong, sinful flesh in toddlers, don't we? What happens when you tell a toddler no? They don't look at you and go, thank you. Thank you so much. I know that you have my well-being in mind. Most toddlers throw a fit. And we still tend to throw fits, don't we, when we don't get our way. So accept the no from God, but, but what's the yes? Okay, maybe I can't do this, but... I get to encourage someone else. 
And Moses did a great job of training and equipping and passing things on to Joshua. So we come to chapter 4. This is an exhortation that Moses gives to the children of Israel. You can see how these read as sermons. This is a sermon that, that Moses is giving to the children of Israel. I want you to think of a sermon that the Holy Spirit used in your life. Can you think back to a time and a place where you were hearing God's word being taught and it was specifically for you? It seemed like nobody else was in the room. Maybe you even had thoughts of, man, how does God know me so well? How does he know that I need this encouragement? How does he know that I need this uh, conviction? For me, one time that stands out of being in high school, it was a Wednesday night, maybe something like this, and our pastor was teaching, and God was reading my mail, and then there was a response time afterwards, and I came up and received prayer from my youth pastor, and there were steps on the stage, and we were sitting on the steps, and he was praying with me and praying for me. It's over 30 years ago, 35 years ago. I don't know how many years ago it was, and it seems like it was yesterday. God was using that, that sermon in my life. What was this like for the children of Israel to hear Moses preach this? We're going to read it tonight, but maybe there was times where he yelled and raised his voice. Maybe there was times where he raised his hands, but remember, Moses is at the end of his life, and these are things that he's passionate about. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord of your fathers is giving you. Listen, I want you to possess all that God has for you. You shall not add to the word which I commanded you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I commanded you. Where did Moses start? Don't change the word of God. <laughs> Do not change the word of God. You don't get to add to it. You don't get to take away from it. This is not our word. It's God's word, so we don't get to edit it. We don't get to change it. This is God's recipe. What happens when you start to alter recipes? For some of you, it goes great because your genius is in the kitchen. For the rest of us, it's a disaster. When it comes to God's recipe, he's got it right. We don't get to change it. We don't get to alter it. We don't get to add to it or take away from it. And either is dangerous. If we add to God's word, it's dangerous. If we take from God's word, it's dangerous. Don't mess with it. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God had destroyed from among you all of the men who followed Baal Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today every one of you, takes them back to God's correction as they were in idolatry and sexual sin. A plague broke out in their midst is reminding them of God dealing with sin. Surely I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them for this is your wisdom, your understanding in the sight of the peoples who hear all of these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation and a wise and understanding people. You've been taught, now live according to, to what you've been taught. For what great nation is there that God is so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. We have this unique relationship with God. We get to call upon God. And what great nation is there that has such statutes, righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day. We've been given the law. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and nevertheless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And teach them to your children and to your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. God says, I want you to pay attention to yourself. Take heed to yourself. 
Moses is going to emphasize this in this chapter, in this sermon. No one else can take heed for yourself. They can warn you, they can teach you, they can instruct you, but we have to take inventory of our own soul. Where am I at with the Lord? Am I walking close with the Lord? Where has sin started to deceive me? So we need to pay attention to where our heart is with the Lord. And as we pay attention to where our heart is uh, with the Lord, then to be able to go and teach, to teach our children and teach our grandchildren. And it's on us as parents and also on grandparents to teach the children. The church is secondary to us as parents teaching our children, sharing with them who God is, sharing with them what God has done in our lives. And God specifically says, I want you to share Horeb, Sinai, when I appeared to the children of Israel and gave the law to them. Make sure that your kids and grandkids know your testimony. When God revealed himself to you, how he revealed himself to you. That's an important way of declaring the glory of God. In verse 11, then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven with darkness, cloud and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the 10 commandments, and he wrote on them two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at the time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. What's the purpose of the law? If you remember, the law was already broken before Moses even had the opportunity to give it. The Ten Commandments were broken before he could even share them because they went into idolatry with the golden calf. The purpose of the law is to show us our need for a savior. If it wasn't for the law, we wouldn't know that we're sinners. But because of the law, it's very clear that we're sinners. Because we're accountable for our actions, but also the attitudes of our hearts. So the law is our schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. If you're wondering, do you need Jesus as your savior? Yes, study the law and you'll see how you fall short. So the old covenant shows us our need for the cross. It shows us our need for Jesus to die for our sins. Here's the warning in verse 15. Take careful heed to yourself. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourself a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. God says, Pay attention. Remember how God revealed himself to you so you don't slip into idolatry. So you don't make it an image in the likeness of a male, the likeness of a female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Warned against idolatry. We need to be warned about idolatry as well, putting things above the Lord. We can do this in several ways. The two ways that are listed here is the first is start to worship something that we create. An idol is created. And we want to worship things that we create with our hands. Oh, look at my car. Oh, it's, it's so nice. I've worked so hard on this, this car. Well, look at my, my career. My, my career it really stands out above everyone else. Look at my education. Do you know how many years I spent in school? And by the way, I'm still paying for it, right? But man, my, my education really makes me something. And when you step back, we're, we're worshiping our education. Well, look at my yard. Oh, I've, I've done so, such good work on, on my yard. And we, we start to worship our, our yard. 
Well, why would we want to worship something that we create? It doesn't have the ability to save us. It doesn't have the ability to give us wisdom, but it does feed our selfishness. We're really worshiping ourselves. And when we worship something that we have created or someone else has created, there's no accountability there. Your yard's not gonna keep you accountable. Your job's not gonna keep you accountable, right? The gym isn't gonna keep you accountable. There's, there's no accountability in worshiping something that we've created. And our selfishness likes that too. So we, we glory in what we've created and we like the fact that we don't have to come under the lordship of something that we've created. But the other thing that we can start to do is worship creation instead of the creator. And we see this happening time and time again where people worship the stars instead of the one who's made the stars. People worship the sun instead of the one who made the sun. The stars are not God. The sun is not God. Pike's Peak, as cool as it is, is not God, right? So don't make that mistake of starting to worship creation. Look at creation and worship the creator. In verse 20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be his people as an inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in the land. I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. Take heed to yourself, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God. God's a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. What does this mean? God's not willing to accept second place in our lives. The way that we see this lived out is in a marriage. There's a godly jealousy in a marriage where you're not gonna settle to be second place in your spouse's life, meaning you're not gonna tolerate unfaithfulness with, with your your spouse. There's that godly expectation that we would be committed to one another in marriage. And God in his love for us is jealous for our hearts and so he's not gonna take second place for us to worship idols. This is what plagued the children of Israel is idolatry as you read throughout the Old Testament. John, as he writes out his epistle, First John, this wonderful letter of God's love and living in love, he ends it this way. Beloved, my dear little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols, idolatry, easily comes into our hearts and lives. Well, how do we know if there's an idol in our life? In Psalm 16, David writes and says that the Lord is his portion and his cup. What we're going to to satisfy us, you think of a portion, okay, here's your, your dinner, you think of a cup, what you're going to for refreshment, what is it that I'm looking to in life to be my portion, to be my cup, what am I, I looking to to satisfy me, okay, is it ministry, am I looking to ministry to be my satisfaction, that could be an idol in my life, Am I looking to family to be my satisfaction? Well, that could be an idol in my life. Am I looking to fitness to, to be my satisfaction? That could be a, an idol in my life. Am I looking to the United States of America to be my satisfaction? I hope not. Okay. That could be an idol in my life. Where am I really going this evening for my portion? For my cup. And it's easy for us to say, oh, that's the Lord. I, I go to the Lord to be my portion. But when was the last time we feasted on him, that we waited upon him, that we worshiped him, that we drew near to him? Very well could be revealing that we've been going to other things and the Lord's calling us back to him. Verse 25, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land, and have acted corruptly and made a carved image in the form of anything 
and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. God knew that they would go into idolatry. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the works of men's hands, wood, stone, which neither see nor hear, nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. God knew that they would go into idolatry. Isn't this amazing? They haven't even entered into the land and God said, someday you're gonna go into idolatry. You're gonna be taken captive. And when you are taken captive, return to me. And when you return to me, God's gonna be merciful and gracious. Hear this tonight. You're not too far gone. You're not too far gone. If you find yourself where you're saying, I've walked away from the Lord, I've drifted from the Lord, he lovingly has put me into captivity, turn back to him. God's mercy and his grace is greater than our sin, amen? Greater than our rebellion. You're here tonight, you're watching tonight, because God's drawing you back to him. Here we are, going through Deuteronomy, and God's speaking to you. It's time to come back. It's time to seek him with all of your heart and receive his grace, receive his mercy, receive his restoration. In verse 32, for ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you, since the Lord God created man on the earth, and ask for one end of heaven to the other, whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. He's, he's reviewing how God has miraculously met the children of Israel. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of a fire? as you have heard and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you, it was shown that you might know the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice, that he might instruct you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Therefore, know this day and consider in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. Think of the great love that God has bestowed on you. This is what God did for Israel. What's God done for you? How has he shown you his love? How has he shown you his care? 1 John 3 verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Far out, we're called the children of God because of his love that he has bestowed upon us. Think of that work of salvation that he's done in your, your life. In response to God's love, you shall therefore keep his statutes and his commands which I commanded you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and he may prolong your days in the land which the Lord God is giving you for all time. Notice God gave the land to the children of Israel for all time. So here we are, so many thousands of years later, and it's largely contested. Who has the land of Canaan? Well, from God's perspective, the Israelites. The cities of refuges are listed. We have spent time on those as well. And the chapter ends with Moses giving 
an introduction to the law of God from verse 44 to uh, verse 49. Before we go tonight, as we've gone through these four chapters rather quickly, it can easily go into Charlie Brown mode. Wah, 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 wah. And by the time we go to bed tonight, I'm like, I don't even really know what we talked about in church. All I know is Eric read a lot of verses, and I was really tired, right? What are some fear and discouragement in our hearts and our lives tonight? Because God has good things for us, promises for us to be abiding in, ways that he wants to use our lives, giants that he wants to defeat. But fear and discouragement and unbelief can keep us from that. And as we come to the communion table, let's meet with the Lord, the creator of the universe. He's here to meet with us and talk over those fears with him. Talk over those disappointments with him. Talk over that unbelief with him. Be honest with him. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's take an honest look at idolatry in our lives. Where have we been going for our portion, for our drink, for our cup, for for our satisfaction? Is your well dry tonight? Like, man, my soul is just so parched. Maybe it's time to turn from those other things and say, Jesus, you're it. You're it, Jesus. You're good. You love me. You died for my sins. I'm remembering your broken body and your shed blood. And I've come to drink of you tonight. You know there's free refills with Jesus? You can come back again and again and say, Jesus, would, would you satisfy my soul? An easier life's not going to satisfy your soul. Only Jesus is going to satisfy your soul. So, Father, we do right now just pray this in. And as we meet with you in communion, would you reveal our fear? Would you reveal our discouragement, our unbelief? And deliver us from our fears. We choose to move out of discouragement to a place of trust and a place of faith. May we be reminded of your great faithfulness as we take communion. And also, would you reveal idolatry in our hearts and in our lives where we've set up things before you? So, Father, would you minister to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.